Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Our reading today is from Ezekiel 1. So, verse 1. In my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kiba River, the heavens opened and I saw visions of God. Verse 4. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal, and the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on the four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Each of the four had a face of a human being, and on the right side of each had a face of a lion, and on the left, a face of an ox, and on each also had a face of an eagle, and each of the other two wings covering its body. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature. The wheels sparkled like topaz. Each appeared to be made like the wheel intersecting the wheel. As they moved, they would go in and in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. Jumping to verse 22. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there, then there came a voice from above the vault, over their head. Above the vault was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on that throne, a figure of that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, And from there down, he looked like fire. A brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on the rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and heard the voice of one speaking. Please welcome Liam to the stage. Thank you. Good morning. Man, I enjoyed watching your faces during that. (laughs) 
okay, if you took a piece of string and wrapped it around a ping pong ball and cut it so that the two ends touched perfectly, you would have a piece of string nine centimeters long. That is the circumference of a ping pong ball. You've all learned something today already. <laughs> now, say you did the same thing with the planet Earth. Don't ask how, just go with me on this. You wrap a piece of string around it, you cut it so that the two ends touch perfectly, you lay it out, you would find you have a piece of string that is 4,007,500,000 centimeters long. If you were then to join the two together, you would have a piece that was 4,007,500,009 centimeters long. And if you put that around the Earth so the ends touched, it wouldn't quite fit snugly. It'd be a tiny little bit of slack the size of a ping pong ball. Obviously, that won't do. So the most obvious thing you could do to rectify this situation would be to get a bunch of matchsticks and stand them up on the ends all the way around the circumference of the Earth, whole way around, and then cut them down to an equal size so that you'd increase the circumference just a tiny little bit enough to take that slack. My question is this. How tiny do you reckon each one of those matchsticks would need to be in order to take that much slack from around the planet Earth? Uh, I need a show of hands. So uh, let's start the bidding at... Um, who, who reckons less than a centimetre? Hands in the air. Okay, a lot of hands are not up. Is that because you think more than a centimetre or you're confused? Who thinks less than a centimetre? Hands up, be bold. I'm not going to shame anyone, don't worry. Okay, uh, who thinks more than a centimetre out of interest? All right, about four people. Okay, let's go with the crowd here and come on, the rest of you, don't be lazy. Um, keep your hands up in the air if you think it will be less than half a centimetre. All right, less than three millimetres. Less than a millimetre. Less than half a millimetre. Less than 0.1 millimetres. 0.01 millimetres. Would any of you people with a hand hazard a guess as to how small each match that would need to be? Very small. <laughs> wow, what, what astonishing accuracy. <laughs> the answer is each matchstick would need to be 1.5 centimetres tall. Oh, <laughs> and if you don't believe me, do the maths and take it up with Michael Ramsden because I stole this illustration from him. My point is this. Our minds break down when we try and wrap them around something finite like a very large number. How much more should we expect our minds to struggle when we wrap them around something infinite like the character and nature of God? If thinking about God has never given you a headache, you have never thought hard about God. If reading a passage like this does not give you a headache, you've not really heard the passage when we encounter God, we should struggle to understand him because we are trying to fit in our finite minds the infinite God who flung stars into space. And so today what I want to do is I want to help us to understand this passage, but more than understanding just this passage, I want to help us to understand something of the nature of God himself. And I'm going to do it by introducing you to three words uh, in three different languages, one Greek, one German, one Hebrew, by the end, you'll be multilingual. And I want to start with this one, apocalypsis. Say it with me, apocalypsis. Well done, that was average. So this is a Greek word. And of the three, uh, no, it's very good. Of the three, it's probably the most familiar and yet the most misunderstood. Because when we use the word apocalypse in English, we tend to misuse it. We think it has to do with death and destruction and the end of the world, right? That's how we use the word apocalypse. But that's not how the Bible uses the word. We might think it does because we've misread Revelation. We'll come to that in a couple of weeks' time. But actually, when the Bible talks about an apocalypsis, it means a revelation, an unveiling 
beginning of something. There is a whole genre of literature in the Bible known as apocalyptic literature. And it's not literature to do with the end of the world. It's about the unveiling of something. Usually it's as if there was a curtain between heaven and earth. And for a moment, that curtain is pulled back so that you either see into heaven and the inner workings of where God dwells, or you see from heaven to the events of earth so that you can understand the events of earth through heaven's perspective. And sometimes the apocalyptic books do both. This doesn't bode well. (laughs) In Ezekiel 1, we see a glimpse. It's like a curtain is pulled back. We get an apocalypse. We see a glimpse into the throne room of God himself. And what Ezekiel sees is baffling. Now, for many of us, we struggle with apocalyptic literature because it's not a common thing that we read these days. Many of us probably find books like this so impenetrable and awkward that we ignore them. We we think they're in the New Testament somewhere and we ignore them. But we... we, (laughs) Sorry, Nangi. I really wish it was Ephesians. It would be so much easier. But we we ignore books like Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation because we're like, I don't know what to do with this. But to be perfectly honest, if you know what you're looking for, apocalyptic literature is not that hard because it's a kind of literature which is full of symbolism with colors and numbers and things that have meanings and if you know what to look for you can crack the code you can understand it so having read plenty of books on the subject of apocalyptic literature in Ezekiel 1 so that you don't have to put it on your summer reading list I am going to explain to you what this apocalypse means and I'm going to do it very very fast bear with me Ezekiel sees this vision. And as the apocalypse is the unveiling unfolds, he sees it in three stages, getting ever more intense as he reaches the center, the throne room of God. He starts on the outermost layer where there is cloud and there is storm and there is lightning and there is fire. And in scripture, a storm often refers to a theophany. That is a word that means an appearance, a coming of God. And the fact that the storm comes from the north is interesting because in the Psalms, the north is described as the dwelling place of God or you North London. And I was like, yeah, not in that case. So uh, clouds in apocalyptic literature, they refer to mystery and inapproachability. But because this is an apocalypse, it's a drawing back of a curtain. We're actually invited into the mystery. So Ezekiel moves on into the second layer inside the cloud. And here is where it gets really weird. Inside the cloud, he sees four creatures with four faces each. Now, why four? And four wings as well. Why four? Well, in apocalyptic literature, the number four refers to fullness or completion. Think of the four corners of the earth. Of course, we know that the earth doesn't have four corners. But when we talk like that, we mean the fullness of the earth, all of the created world. So you've got four creatures And each of them has four faces which represent the pinnacle of a particular realm of creation. So you get the lion, which is the most majestic creature in the wild, the ox, which is the most majestic domestic creature, the eagle, which is the most majestic in the realm of the air, and the human, the pinnacle of God's creation, the thing he made and looked at and said, that is very good. All the references are here. Do check them out. Make sure I'm not making it up as I go along. So you get these four-faced creatures which represent the fullness of the creation created order in all its glory. And if you read ahead to Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 20, you find that these are not actually strange creatures. They are angels. They are cherubim. And it says that the wings of these creatures, they touched one another. I mean, what is that meant to tell us? Just that they're packed in close? No, I think it's symbolic because the same phrase is found in 1 Kings chapter 6, where it describes the 
inner part of the temple, the most holy place. And in that place, there are statues, wooden statues of what? Cherubim, whose wings touch one another. So we're getting a hint that here, Ezekiel is seeing something of which the temple furniture is like a pale shadow. It's like the temple, the dwelling place of God, was created as a pale reflection of what is a living reality in heaven. Are you with me? One person is with me. (laughs) Then you get the wheels, okay? And this is where it gets even more strange. So each creature has four wheels attached. Now, a chariot in these days had two wheels, so they could only go in one direction. This has four wheels. So immediately, you know, this chariot is greater than any human chariot. And it's described that because of these four wheels and the fact you've got faces on any side, the chariot is always and ever moving forwards. It's always moving forwards whatever direction it's going in because it's always going face forwards. It, cannot, it doesn't need to turn in order to be going forwards. Now, clearly, this is impossible in human terminology, but Ezekiel is struggling to express what he's seeing. And he says the wheels are like wheels with another wheel inside, which is odd. But he's probably describing something gyroscopic like the next slide. The idea is it's like BB-8 attached to these creatures. Uh, but the idea is that these things can just move in any direction, unlike any human chariot. And these wheels are covered in eyes all the way around. So we get the sense that this chariot is, nothing can stop it. It's omnipotent, but it's also omniscient. It can go anywhere and see anything. And so Ezekiel sees this And if that wasn't weird enough, then he hears this sound as the chariot starts moving and it's the voice of God and he comes into the third section, the throne room of God. He says, above the chariot is a throne that gleams like precious stones. Now, this is interesting. You've got the throne almost on the chariot itself, which again, if you read the description of the temple in 2 Chronicles 28, you find that's exactly what you find in the temple. You get this chariot made of cherubim, these wooden carved angels, and on it is the Ark of the Covenant, the dwelling place of God. So Ezekiel sees this and he knows, I am about to see God himself. And he looks at the throne. And what does he see? It says he sees what looks like a human being. Notice it's not actually, oh, there's a human. It's it's something that looks like a human, but also sort of not like any human that you or I might know. He's covered in fire and light, which symbolize purity. And he's got these gleaming metals, which are like armor, symbolizing his power and his victory. And there's just so much brightness. But it's not just bright white light, it's rainbows. It's every color there is emanating from the one who is on the throne. And if you know scripture, you know that two rainbows mean two things. One, they mean God's power because they're like the bow from which he fires lightning like arrows, symbolizing his victory. And two, it represents his compassion because it's the symbol he gave to Noah to say, I love this world and I will never destroy it again. So Ezekiel goes in through these different realms of the apocalypsis and at the center of it, the heart of the vision. He sees a God who is all-seeing, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, inapproachable, totally pure, totally perfect, and that is Ezekiel 1 in a nutshell, and I will take a breath and a bow. (laughs) Now, if I were to end the sermon at this point, you could leave here thinking, great, I understand Ezekiel 1. But I would put it to you that you would not understand Ezekiel 1. You would understand the symbols of Ezekiel 1. I don't think we have understood Ezekiel's vision until we experience Ezekiel's reaction. You see, Ezekiel doesn't look at this and go, great, I've grown in my intellectual understanding. I now know more about God. What does he do? He hits the ground in worship and in awe. What is the proper response to an apocalypsis? It's not to go, great, now I can write a book on symbols. (laughs) It's to say, oh my God, 
I, I've got to hit the ground in worship and awe. We have not understood the vision of Ezekiel until we experienced the reaction of Ezekiel. In the same way that if I took you to an art gallery and showed you an amazing piece of art, the proper response to that art is not to learn everything about the technicalities of it, but to be moved by it. Understanding helps us, but the ultimate goal is to be moved by it in the same way. The proper response to seeing God and apocalypsis is not to go, wow, I understand God fully. It's to drop to your knees in worship and awe. Which leads me to the second word. Say it with me. Next slide. <laughs> no one? <laughs> All right, Grensbegrifflick. Say it with me. Grensbegrifflick. Okay, I dare you to use this word in a sentence this week. I love this word. Germans have amazing words. They really do. This is a German word. And it means that which is true but cannot be described in human words. That which is true, but beyond description. Uh, you know that worship song, Indescribable? Wouldn't it be way better if it was Grensbegrifflick? <laughs> Maybe it is in Germany, I don't know. But like, <laughs> we, should, we should definitely sing that. And Rich isn't here today. He'll be freaked out next time. He goes, what? Uh, Grensbegrifflick. That which is true, but is beyond human description. I love this word because there are two aspects to it. It's that which is true, that which is real. This is not stuff we've made up. It's stuff that you know is absolutely true, but you cannot put it into human language. For example, you know, uh, when you're moved by a particular song and you can't really explain why. You know you are, but you can't put it into words to someone else or, or why you fell in love with that particular person. Or You know it's true. You know it's real, but you can't prove it. You can't articulate it fully to someone else. That's Grensbegrifflick. And the glory of God here is Grensbegrifflick. Ezekiel knows he's not imagining this. He has experienced something. We know that because he, he drops to the deck. He worships in awe. He's, he's, he's terrified and confused by this. He knows he's encountered God and he cannot put it into words. I mean, he tries and there are some brilliant words in that passage. But actually, you get a sense when you read it through, Ezekiel is really struggling to describe what he's seen here because it's Grensbegrifflick. Actually, there are two words that are used again and again in this short chapter. One is demut, which is translated likeness and is used 10 times. Another is ke, which is translated as if or like and is used 18 times. And these two vague words show that in 28 different times in one passage, Ezekiel is struggling to articulate what he's saying. It's, it's like this. It's as if this. It's not exactly that. Like That's the closest I can get in human language, but this is beyond human language. And interestingly, he uses half of these times in the final four verses where he gets to the center of the revelation. He says, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. It's not exactly a man, but that's the closest I can get. I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and so on and so on and so on. You get a sense that Ezekiel has seen something that is just changing his life, and he tries to put it into words, and the words fail him. So he's like, well, it, it, it's like, the, I mean, it's not that, but it's, this is as close as I can get. That's Grensbegrifflick. He has experienced something he knows is true, but he can't put it into human words. The deeper the apocalypse is, the more it is Grensbegrifflick. If you ever wanted a tweetable quote, that's it. <laughs> so long as you can spell the words. The deeper the revelation of God, the more we should be aware, man, I barely know you at all. <laughs> can't put you into words. The deeper the apocalypse is, the more his Grensbegrifflick, the philosopher Peter Rollins, his brilliant book, How Not to Speak of God, he says, that which we cannot speak of is the one thing about whom and to whom we must never stop speaking. I really love that quote. 
Because I think it expresses a tension at the heart of Christian worship, which is this. If you really think about God, not just the God of your own imagining, the God that you concoct through your own thoughts. If you really think about God, you'll quickly realize he is way bigger than I could ever put into words. And so knowing that, you could easily think, well, I would be best off just not saying anything about him for fear that I'm going to misrepresent him. But if it is also true that we find our peace and our fullness and our rest through knowing him, in relationship with him, communing with him, then if we want to live life to the full, we cannot not speak of him. He is that which we cannot speak of, but the one thing about whom and to whom we must never stop speaking. Worship needs to incorporate both those aspects of expression through word and song and action, but also mystery and awe and a sense that I will never be able to put you into words. God is Grensbegrifflick. We can know him truly, but we must be humble enough to admit we cannot know him fully. And we should not ever expect to know him fully. When was the last time you experienced the presence of God? And instead of speaking, instead of praying, instead of singing, instead of telling someone about it, you were just like, I can't say anything. You were just humble to silence. When was the last time you experienced the presence of God and it made you feel so tiny? And all you could do was get to your knees. If you've been around church for many years like I have, it can be so easy to get to the point where you feel like you've got God nailed and got him in a box. And if that's you, that, that's not God in a box. That's something else. Like, we should never get to a point where we feel we've got God nailed. It's so easy to think, I've read all the books. I've sung all the songs. I've heard every sermon on every passage under the sun. I know God. There is more. Or you can go the other way. When we feel like we don't understand God, we get annoyed because we feel we've got some kind of right to understand him. Like when we find out that his ways are not our ways, we assume that's because his ways are wrong. <laughs> if you feel like either of those two things, here is my challenge to you, lovingly, kindly, and gently. The majority of you at the start of this talk were confused by a ping pong ball at a 10-digit number. Are you honestly arrogant enough to think that you can fit the infinite God inside your finite mind? God is Grensbegrifflick. He is that which we can know truly, but we cannot know fully, and we cannot put into human words. When was the last time you encountered his presence and was silenced? When was the last time you learned something new about God that meant you had to change your view of him and admit, I have got this wrong up to now? When was the last time you encountered him and were just struck dumb because you couldn't even dare to put anything into words? His presence was so strong and so thick. When was the last time you admitted the limitations of your intellect and your language in his presence? One of my favorite verses in all of scripture is in Ecclesiastes 5, which I have to say as someone who talks about God for a living, I find incredibly challenging. It says this, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. And you are on earth, so let your words be few. Sometimes the most honest thing we can say about God is just nothing at all. Sometimes the most heartfelt song is silence. Sometimes it does us good to say, God, would you humble me? I want to know you, but I also want to know that I can't fully know you. 
Maybe you're here today as someone who is seeking God. You're asking questions about him. And maybe you're thinking, you know, Liam, I've got a million questions about God. And frankly, this talk is not helping me. <laughs> if that's you, you're probably not alone. Don't worry. But maybe you're thinking, I've got a million questions about God. And actually right now I'm despairing because I think, how can I ever know him? My appeal to you is this, go easy on yourself. He's Grensbegrifflick. <laughs> he is that which you can know truly in a life-changing way. But you will never answer every one of your questions about him. I have a million questions about God. I've got questions I don't even know. <laughs> I don't expect to answer them all by the time I die. I think that's the way it should be. If I could answer every one of my questions about God, he would not be God. I would be God, and I'm not God. So if you're here today thinking, I don't know if I could, how do I ever get to know this God? Go easy on yourself. He's Grensburg but he wants to be known. He reveals himself. He gives us moments where he pulls back the curtain so we can see what he's like. But when we see what he's like, we realize that he's far bigger than we could ever possibly comprehend. And that's good. That's the essence of worship. And if you are grappling with questions about God, God wants you to know him. He wants you to seek those answers. And as we heard earlier, we're running an alpha course, which I, I can absolutely promise you will not answer every one of your questions, but it will help. It will help you on the journey to seeing God as he truly is. Speaking of seeing God as he truly is, this brings us to the third word. What is it that Ezekiel sees as he turns? He hears this voice. He turns round. What does he see? It says this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This is our third word, kavod. Say it with me, kavod. This is a Hebrew word. It means glory. It appears in the Old Testament 376 times. And like many Hebrew words, it has layers of meaning, one of which is to do with beauty. And that's definitely here. Ezekiel sees the kavod of God, the, the glory of God. And it is gorgeous. It is beautiful. There are gems and there is light and there is fire and there is lightning. I, I love seeing storms. Like they remind, It's beautiful. It's destructive, but it's beautiful. You see that and there are rainbows, every color emanating from it. There is beauty. That's what happens when you see the glory of God. You see infinite beauty. But the second layer to it is it's to do with weight. And now when the Bible uses the word kavod to mean weight, sometimes it means literally, like it talks about Absalom's hair being kavod, heavy. He had so much of it, it literally means heavy. But more often it's a metaphorical usage. And we say the same thing in English, right? If, if I say that person in a particular group carries a lot of weight, I'm not typically referring to the, the, the amount of actual weight they're carrying. I mean, their, their opinion has authority with it so that when they speak, people stop and they listen, right? Well, let me give you another example uh, when you're talking to a British person and you're like, how are you doing? And they go, yeah, fine, or okay, or not bad. It, Lars gets so annoyed with me every week. Like we sit there in a meeting. He's like, how is everyone? And we're like, okay, not bad, fine. And he's like, oh, come on, stop being so British. But that's what we do, right? We have those conversations. And he's just like, yeah, fine, fine, fine. You know that moment where someone just goes, my world's falling apart. And you're like, whoa, that, that wasn't on the script. <laughs> fine, okay, yeah, not bad. My world is falling apart. In that moment, something changes in the room, right? There's a weight that wasn't there before. You, you may even be feeling it now. I feel it now. <laughs> like, because someone has opened up a new level of vulnerability. And if you're anything like me at that moment, you sense the weight and you think, this is a holy moment. I've got to tread carefully here. That's glory. That's kavod. So Ezekiel experiences infinite beauty and infinite weight and authority when he experiences God. He sees his glory. And what does he do? He drops to the ground as if dead. 
Have you ever wondered why people in Scripture, they see God and they fall over all the way through Scripture again and again? It's because of the weight of God. It's because the, the authority and the beauty is so overwhelming. It's like it presses down and bam, they hit the ground in worship and awe. It's the only proper response to the glory of God. Sometimes falling to your knees in silence is the most humble and most profound most beautiful form of worship. When you experience infinite beauty and infinite weight and authority, how else can you honestly respond? Ezekiel falls to the ground as he sees God's glory. But what does God's glory look like? What is it? Is it just rainbows and light and color? No, no, no. It's, it's more specific than that. He looks at the throne and it says, on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I think this is a particular man a particular human being. I think it's Jesus Christ. Because in John chapter 1, it says that the word, remember Ezekiel heard the word and he turned around. The word took on flesh, human form, and made his dwelling among us. This vision of heaven, the dwelling place of God, of which the temple was just like an earthly pale reflection, the dwelling place of God. God made his dwelling place among us when he took on human form and walked among us. And we have seen his glory. There's this brilliant moment, one of my favorite bits in John's gospel, John 18, Jesus is standing in a garden at nighttime and suddenly he's surrounded by this army. We don't know how many soldiers, but they're there in their armor and they've got their swords. And Jesus, just like a peasant carpenter, like he was not wearing armor, I don't, it, just in his normal day clothes. And he's there and this army surrounds him, terrifying. And they say to him with their swords drawn, are you Jesus of Nazareth? He says, I am he, which in Greek is ego eimi, which you remember back to a few weeks ago is the name of God. All he says is, yep. <laughs> what happens? The soldiers in their armor with their swords, they drop to the ground. Why? Because in that moment, it's like the curtain was pulled back. They saw the glory of God. They saw infinite beauty, infinite waste in the face of Jesus Christ and they couldn't stand it. They hit the ground. That's what it's meant to be like when we see the glory of God. If you want to see God, you don't have to have an ecstatic vision like Ezekiel. You don't have to climb into the heavens because the glory of God stepped down from the heavens, took on human form. And as Paul says, we have seen the light of the radiance, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's why we sing about Jesus. That's why people are so moved by Jesus. The glory of God came down and gave his life for us, died on a cross, rose again from the grave to show the extent of his love and his glory. And when we sing, when we worship, sometimes that should move us to say, I've got no words. The deeper the apocalypse is, the more it is Grensburg-Rifflick, the more we encounter his glory. When I was preparing this talk, I was reminded of an experience I had uh, 15 years ago when I was doing my A-levels, which means you can work out how old I am if you want, but just rem remember you've already been stumped by one maths problem today. <laughs> I'm 34 if that helps you, Ross. I'm <laughs> so I, I was doing A-level music and I was, um, my teacher managed to get some tickets for our class to come to a a show at the Royal Albert Hall. I'd never been to the Albert Hall before. It was the Classical Brit Awards. And um, uh, so we got this box, just a prime location in the Albert Hall. And I was really excited. We had to dress up for it and came up to London. And 
just feeling really out of place. Everyone else, adults, looking very smart. I was in an oversized tuxedo I'd borrowed from someone. and It was just strange, uh, but really exciting. And uh, it was awful. It was, I don't mean full of awe. I mean, I mean it was horrendous. It, it was honestly one of the worst musical experiences I've ever been to. It was being filmed for TV, and it was all sort of chopped up into little bits. And, uh, and it was so showy. And there were pyrotechnics and the, the absolute low point was a singer who uh, I can't even name him <laughs> uh, but you know him, like very famous singer and he did this rendition of Jerusalem and as he started singing women with bikinis that had Union Jacks on started dancing on the stage at the Royal Albert Hall and there were glitter cannons and pyrotechnics so loud you couldn't hear the music and some of you are looking like great <laughs> the majority of you are <laughs> No, <laughs> but we'll pray for you at the end. The majority of you share my musical snobbishness. I was like, this is horrendous. And my teacher was like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. It was dreadful, really dreadful. And so the evening was coming to an end and the announcer got up and he said, well, we've got a special treat for you now. And I was like, I am not excited about this. I didn't know what, it, you know, the songs of S Club played on a kazoo. I didn't know what to expect. I, I, I was, that would have been better. But I, I, I just like, I was done. I was not excited about this special treat. He said, would you please applaud and welcome to the stage, Andrea Bocelli. Now, that was special, right? <laughs> if you don't know Andrea Bocelli, he is a brilliant singer. Uh, an Italian singer, absolutely amazing. He's often referred to as the fourth tenor. He's got a just beautiful voice. And, um, uh, and he's been blind since the age of 12. So there was this moment where everyone just was surprised and applauded. And then uh, a lady led him onto the stage, like holding his arm and guiding him onto the stage and took him right to the front where there was a microphone and placed his hands on the microphone so that he could find and hold the microphone and get it into the right position. And there was nothing else on the stage at this point. Uh, the orchestra is down below and there, there were no dancers, no pyrotechnics, just, just him. And to be honest, he looked pretty vulnerable, having been led there and just standing there by himself. And then he started to sing. And oh my word, it was just so unlike anything else I'd heard that night. And I want to play you a clip from a different performance. Uh, it pales into insignificance just watching it on a screen, but it may just give you a, a taste of what I experienced that night. Maybe you could roll the video. So he performed, and before I knew it, I was on my feet, and I was clapping, and I was cheering, and I was shouting, and I was welling up, and I didn't feel like I'd chosen to do those things. It was like I just, it just came out of me, and I wasn't alone. Everyone was doing the same. 
And in that moment, I think what moved me most was that there was no showiness about it. It was just perfect beauty and perfect authority, just still and simple. But the weight of it brought out of me a heart response beyond words. And I, involuntarily, I was clapping and shouting and jumping and waving. And, and I, in that moment, I realized that I felt completely incapable of fully communicating what his song had done in my heart. I clapped as hard as I could and I shouted and cheered as loud as I could and tears were streaming down my face, but I felt like it wasn't enough. I felt like he wanted, I wanted him to know more. I felt aware of the distance between us and he could hear everyone clapping. I was also aware that like, he... He couldn't see that everyone was standing, but I also sort of knew that he knew at the same time, if you know what I mean. Like, and maybe it was enough for him, but I felt like it wasn't enough for me. I felt like there was more I wanted to give to express what was in my heart. Honestly, that's worship. And it strikes me that if a man, a human being, using their God-given gifts can do something that brings together such pure beauty and pure authority in a way that makes a weight descend on a room and people leap to their feet, so in a, just suddenly aware of their incapability of fully expressing what's going on in their heart. How much more should we be moved like that when we encounter the glory of God? We see the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, perfect beauty and perfect authority. Sometimes we should leap and we should jump and we should clap and we should applaud and we shouldn't have to be told to. It should just come naturally when we see his beauty and experience the weight of his presence. And sometimes we should kneel and sometimes we should laugh and sometimes we should cry and sometimes we should say, God, you're in heaven and I'm on earth and I'm I'm going to shut up because I have no words. That's worship. And if you get that, then you understand what Ezekiel 1 is all about. And that's why we're doing this series. Because we want to think about what it means to see God and be moved to worship. I'm going to invite the band back up in a second and then we're going to come back to worship. In fact, maybe the band will come now. And I'm going to ask them to play and sing, Be Still for the Presence of the Lord. And normally now in a talk, I would ask you all to stand, but I'm not going to do that because I want you to respond however you want to respond today. I'm going to kneel because I know that for me, sometimes that just helps me to be aware of how big he is and how small I am by comparison. You may want to kneel if space allows you. You may want to stay seated. You may want to stand. You may want to lie down. I'd, I'd do whatever but right now, why don't you just get into a position ready to experience the presence of God? I'm going to pray and ask him to make his glory known. You may want to close your eyes. You may want to engage your imagination. 
As Joe mentioned earlier, just listen for his still small voice. You may want to hold out your hands as a way of surrendering to him. While the band play and sing, you may want to sing along. You may just want to think about the words. You may want to listen for the things that God is whispering to you. I'm going to pray in a moment. And I, I think as I do, some of you will experience his presence. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you make known right now your perfect beauty and your perfect authority? I pray that your glory would rest in this place. I feel right now like maybe even some of you are feeling something of that weight just resting on you. Emotions rising up within you, almost without you choosing. Come, God. As the band start playing, some of you will just want to utter little prayers to God. Some of you will find you don't have the words. Just let your silence be a prayer. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.